Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the guy who's part of an executive leadership team to get Alibaba Group to invest in Singapore Post from my past life and in my spare time I want to understand why Jack Ma decided to retire from the Alibaba Group and what does it mean for them in the future. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia and today I have Raymer, founder of Transformative Technology Academy and host of the Tech Bus China podcast here again. Welcome Raymer and it's great to have you back. Hi, thanks for having me back. Yes, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Yeah, so as you introduced, you know, I've been really busy working on the Tech Buzz China podcast, really excited at how that's going. More and more people are interested in China tech, so that's very encouraging. And as for my, you know, Transformative Technology Academy, which is an online incubator for startups in technology working on well-being and mental health, that's been going really well. We have over a thousand people in our community representing 69 countries, so really exciting. And I think we definitely have some from Singapore. I have to look, (laughs) but yeah, we definitely have some. So you have actually started uh, working with all these startups in the wellness space at the moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Basically, um, it's an online incubator for startups and uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, mostly in the pre-seed and seeds uh, stage. Before I get onto the main subject of the day, I wanted to just tap your brain a bit on some topics in China, which I actually listened to the Tech Bus China podcast. And I thought those episodes were pretty interesting. So the first one I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on Baidu versus Google part two, if it's ever happening? Thanks to, of course, language Watts breaking of the project Dragonfly in the Intercept recently. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting ongoing saga. It seems that, you know, I, I saw news yesterday as well coming out that Google might be going ahead with the program despite sort of internal employee disapproval. You know, for us, we covered more of the Chinese perspective and why Chinese people would be interested in having Google re-enter China. And as you mentioned, we did do a whole episode on it. A lot of it centered around how in China, most specifically with Baidu, because they do have 70% market share, but actually all the search players have sort of opaque business practices that are not always consumer friendly. So a lot of them, you know, what I would call quote unquote tech elites in China are really looking forward to having Google re-enter the market because they think it'll bring more transparency to the market. But it's important to note that even the people who are really big fans of Google don't think they'll succeed. So don't think they'll really make a dent in market share in China. And if you look at, you know, what they did before they left, honestly, they weren't, I mean, they had like second place, but they weren't like, you know, gaining on Baidu. So it's hard to see them really winning in China. But like I said, from the Chinese perspective, quite a few people do want them to return. I understand that Google has recently invested in JD Jingdong. And of course, Google is also talking to Tencent. Could they actually be a scenario where they will just enter China, but through Tencent this time around so that they only need to embed their technologies to take on Baidu without actually going into a direct fight? Yeah, I mean, again, we, we actually did an episode as well on JD and Google tie up or I shouldn't call it tie up because it was a very small investment. I, I, I don't really see that being politically less sensitive than Google entering, you know, on its own, quote unquote. So I'm not sure how to assess that situation. I think right now, a lot of the risks are really, you know, it's less commercial, and it's more political. I'll put the links to both episodes, but I want to ask you one more question before we get onto it. I wanted to ask, is WeChat really bulletproof? 
<laughs> awesome. Awesome, Bernard. You're such a great promoter <laughs> of our episodes. Yeah. So you're referring to basically this new chat app called Bullet Messenger that came out, I guess, a few weeks, maybe three, four weeks ago and really shot up to the top of the app stores in China. And, uh, you know, a lot of headlines proclaimed that it was going after WeChat. In fact, if you look at the app and if you, you know, read the interviews of the founder, it's really going after more like Slack, right? So more of a workplace or what they call productivity chatting. Our assessment is basically no, right? It's, it's a very still unpolished product. And a lot of the momentum behind it was actually because they had a celebrity entrepreneur, this guy named uh, Luo Yonghao, endorse it. And that was a lot of the reason behind the quick ramp up and that's already you can already see that it's tapered down quite a bit because the app you know I, I've used it not significantly because I don't have too many friends on it. it you just can't really see what the true innovations are I don't really think that it does what it claims to which is workplace communications as far as I know right now of course they've already raised 22 million dollars so we'll see maybe they have some significant product changes coming up that could be interesting but as of right now now, myself and most other people I know looking at tech in China are not bullish. And so yes, WeChat would be bulletproof. Of course, this is interesting because you mentioned Slack. I also remember that Alibaba, which is also going to be the main subject of this day, has a product that's quite similar called Ding Ding. And I remember when I was working with them from the Singapore Post site, they were heavily recommending that app for my company to actually try to use them. Yeah, the English name is Ding Talk. And indeed, in Alibaba, of course, internally, yeah, you have to use that product. There is also quite a few businesses who use it. And by the way, WeChat also has an enterprise version. Unfortunately, both of these apps require sort of a business license, like a physical registration of a business in China to use. So I personally have not used it. I've seen screenshots of the products. But as far as I know, I think that there is probably still a little bit of room for someone to come up with a workplace messenger. It does seem like there are complaints online about, you know, Ding Talk and WeChat Enterprise. I don't know. My personal opinion is, you know, I use Slack all the time and I see a lot of improvements that could be, you know, made on Slack too. So I don't know that there's a perfect solution because everyone works so differently. I mean, Slack has not been banned in China, right? If I didn't remember wrongly. Oh, I think it has actually. Or it's, uh, yeah, actually we should check, but I, I think it has because we don't, we have people in, in our program from China using Slack and I know that they have trouble connecting. I believe it has. So this is probably one of the most interesting conversation, which I got you here because I want to hear your thoughts on Alibaba's leadership transition. I'm just going to start off by talking a little bit about Alibaba Group. Today is actually a multinational conglomerate specializing in e-commerce, retail, AI, cloud computing, and finance with N Financial at over US 400 billion market capitalization since the founding in 1999 by Jack Ma, along with another 17 founders. And of course, we called the, this 18 founders a Shipa Lohan, you know, the, the 18 monks, gods in the Buddhist world. And to help my audience, maybe, can you introduce Alibaba Group as a company and how they are perceived in China and the rest of the world? 
Yeah, sure. I can give like a really brief overview. So Alibaba is, you know, the top one or two internet companies in China, right? They kind of trade spots with Tencent. They were both at one point over half a trillion dollars in market cap. And I think both have come down a little bit since then. Alibaba is more known for sort of e-commerce. But like you said, it's really expanded into a lot of other industries. So it's really the 800 pound gorilla in commerce. So, so it has... As of Q2 2018, their financial reports show that they have 576 million active users online for their e-commerce products. So that's a lot. That's over half a billion people. And they have 634 million mobile MAU. The main products they have under e-commerce are Taobao, which most people probably have heard of, Tmall, which we can talk about a little bit later, which is more for um, you know larger brands. And then, of course, they have a stakes through Ant Financial in Alipay, AliExpress. And then there's also their old business, Alibaba.com, which was like the first company uh, under the umbrella to go public. And then their new efforts include Aliyun, which is Ali Cloud, their Ali Cloud business, Cainiao, which is their logistics business. They have Autonavi, um, you know, mapping. They have Yuaba, which is sort of an asset management, money management app. And then recently they've been, uh, they have a lot in the news on Hema, which is their retail 2.0, this upgraded sort of supermarket with a lot of, you can think of like a lot more an intelligent uh, grocery store. They also have significant stakes in other companies or have outright acquired companies that were previously independent, but they've acquired them such as Weibo, uh, they have a stake in Weibo. They've acquired Youku Tudo, which was China's leading online video platform. They have a stake in Singapore Post, which you mentioned that you had worked at before. And uh, UC Web was one of their uh, biggest acquisitions. That's a um, web browser. And then, you know, recently, I think in the news a lot, you've seen an Alibaba invested company called Ulama, which is food delivery, of course, in Southeast Asia. So they bought Lazada out. Right. And but if you look at the company, the, the listed uh, entity, it's still growing really quickly. Um, in Q2, they had revenue growth of 61 percent year on year. That's huge. I mean, we're talking about a really large business here with annual revenues of 40 plus billion dollars. They're also still highly profitable. They have four billion dollars of adjusted free cash flow. You know, last quarter they had 12 billion dollars of revenue. So that's sort of 43% margin. Really, really impressive. And of course, Alibaba Group has actually extended all itself across the world globally. And particularly, it's been actually going to be competing Tencent and Jingdong Direct in the Southeast Asia market. And this has actually been one of the biggest focal points of why people in China are now interested into Southeast Asia. One thing I wanted to know is probably... We all hear of Jack Ma. We know how influential he is with Alibaba as probably he is the co-founder, even though there are 70 other founders, but he's actually very influential. So I think maybe we should take a step back and to hear about what's Jack Ma's role in Alibaba and how has he shaped Alibaba's dominance in e-commerce in so many areas over the years then? Yeah, I mean, you can think of Jack Ma as sort of the spiritual leader. Honestly, he hasn't been involved in operations on a day-to-day -day basis for a very long time, right? So he is, like you said, even though there are 18 quote-unquote co-founders, he's really the face of Alibaba. And he's really the person who has been the main spokesperson. He's also been 
credited with like all of the sort of strategy that set Alibaba up for the first, you know, 10, 15 years. He's really taken a step back uh, in the past couple years, I think, like I said, from the day-to-day operations, but most people still identify Alibaba very much as Jack Ma's company. So I would say he's the spiritual leader and he's the main cheerleader of the company. I think it's important to talk about his impact on Alibaba at from a personality and cultural perspective. So Jack Ma, I I don't know if your listeners know, but really started off as an English teacher, right? So he went to teaching school and then he was very good at English. He was rated like top 10 uh, teacher in Hangzhou, which is a big city in China after he graduated and was working. He started a translation service, which is, he always refers to it as his first attempt at entrepreneurship and sort of failed (laughs) miserably. And then he, you know, was able to stumble upon Alibaba as an idea. But the important thing here to know is that he has never been a technical person. So in fact, he sort of prides himself on it. And he says that Alibaba really benefited from this side of him because he is able to sort of not get tangled up in the technical side of things and really sort of see through to the consumer's need. I would say generally in China, he really has a cult following. If you just walk around in China in the airports, a lot of times they have videos of, you know, famous business people talking sort of like Tony Robbins style, you know, self-help gurus and all that. A lot of times you'll see Jack Ma's face because He's really known for what we call xinling jitang, which is like chicken soup, which is like self-help, a lot of, you know, encouragement, a lot of like, you can do it attitude. So people just absolutely love this guy. And they also like love him because he's able to... Uh, succeed in spite of all his, I guess, sort of disadvantages, right? So number one, he didn't come from like some important family or anything like that. And and Hangzhou, relatively speaking, is a second tier city in China. But also he is in Chinese, like he's ugly. (laughs) So, and he says that himself, you know, he's not a good looking guy. And this is not a, this is not a politically incorrect thing to say, because in China looks actually matter a lot. And, you know, a lot of people, I think less so now because he's so successful and he is the richest man in China. But for a very long time, people were like, oh my God, Jack Ma looks like an alien. If he can succeed, so can I, you know? So he has that sort of effect on people. Very, very uh, motivating. He's like a big motivational speaker. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, because of his non-technical background in uh, Alibaba, when he set it up, you can see in Alibaba's culture, it's it's less dominated by technical staff, right? So in a lot of Silicon Valley companies, if you talk to the employees there, they, they feel that, for example, like technical staff are valued much more than other staff. But in Alibaba, that's not the case. And in fact, you have this weird phenomenon where, you know, they they say publicly, actually, and, and if you go online, and look for it, uh, Alibaba's HR is like one of the most powerful departments. Because like I said, of Jack Ma's sort of unconventional background that led him to this, you know, tech startup business. So he manages things, I think, quite differently from what you might think of uh, other people, especially his, you know, other people that are mentioned in the same breath as him, right? Like Robin Lee and Pony Ma, who are both technical and engineers by, by origin. So he's just very different. One interesting thing I want to point out here is that if we want to get to understand a little bit about Jack Ma's early days, Porter Erisman's movie, The Crocodile of Yangtze, is a very, very good movie that actually shows how Jack Ma thought about Alibaba from the start because it takes a lot of clips of their early days 
and also putting together how Jack Ma fought eBay and basically crushed them with Taobao in the end and, and, and the way how he got it done in that way. I mean, I, I don't know whether you have watched that movie and it kind of gave me a feel of actually Alibaba is not very typical as a Chinese company. It feels more like a Silicon Valley company, even when I visited them in Hangzhou as well. Yeah, yeah. I have quite a few friends who work for Alibaba and I, I do think they're, it's different from some of the other Chinese tech companies. Actually, BAT are all quite different in their own right. But yeah, like Jack Ma is really known for being very creative. And I think that has a lot to do with his you know, non-technical, more liberal arts. Although he was an English teacher, I'm not quite sure that's liberal arts, maybe like just general humanities background. I also need to point out one interesting thing about Hangzhou. And if for the audience do not know, there is this very good Chinese saying, 上有天堂,下有苏杭, and they refer to Hangzhou. Hangzhou is also a very interesting place where most of the most well-known Chinese poets came from and probably most well-known is Su Dongpo and some of the great intellectuals of China actually came from Hangzhou. And I think now it's currently somewhere in the third and the fourth where the largest group of entrepreneurs are actually building unicorns. So it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting place, even for a second-tier city, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it's part of Zhejiang, which is known as where a lot of, in the old days, I think a lot of strategists came from and business people. So very commercially minded place in terms of heritage. <laughs> Why has he decided to retire given that he's only 54 years old now? I mean, compare and contrast to Ponima from Tencent and Robin Lee from Baidu. Yeah, I mean, we can only go by like, I, I don't know exactly what's going on inside his brain. So we can only go by what he said publicly. But I think actually he's been fairly consistent and he's, this is not a total surprise, right? I mean, the guy really does love teaching. Like I said, he, you know, was a top teacher before he started Alibaba. And he is a, he's been very consistent about that. So basically, teaching is a very revered profession in China, like you get a lot of respect for being a teacher. If you go online and read what Alibaba employees like have said about Jack, basically, in inside the company, you don't call him Ma Zong, which would be meaning, you know, boss Ma, which is would be a typical title for a boss, you have to call him Ma Lao Shi, right? He's which means teacher Ma. He's really held on to that identity. He also started Hupan University, like, which I think you can loosely translate as Lakeside University a couple years ago, really focused on educating entrepreneurs. He's been very consistent in his love for education. And in fact, when he announced his retirement officially, it was on September 10th. It did happen to be his birthday, apparently. But in Chinese media, you see that he chose this day because it's Teacher's Day. So again, this, this guy has just been very consistent about his love for education, which is one of the main reasons he cited as is why he wanted to retire. So if, if you do go by that story or that narrative, I think there's a lot of evidence, you know, it's been building up for the past decade or so. Again, if you look at what he's actually done with the role, he's given up the CEO role like a few years back, three years ago to Daniel Zhang, who he's named officially now as the successor. It's, it's not like a surprise. It's not like he's giving everything up on the same date. He's slowly graduated, you know, gra so slowly and gradually given away responsibility. So this is just like the next step. If you do compare him to his peers, like as you said, Robin Lee and Pony Ma, I think those people are just very different per personality. There's this joke in Chinese internet that if you know one of the BAT CEOs goes missing, 
if it happens to be Jack, the stock will probably go down. If it's Pony, probably nothing will happen to the stock. If it's Robin of Baidu, then the stock will probably go up. <laughs> Sad for Robin. But you know, if, even if you look at Pony, Pony actually chose the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. This is his company did go public, you know, early 2000s, not not recently. He chose this Hong Kong Stock Exchange because it didn't have dual class structures because he wanted to be very egalitarian. And he to this day, he doesn't have extra voting rights more than his economic interest. In fact, I think his uh, voting rights are now like less than 10%. He's steadily decreased it. And, you know, I think if you compare Alibaba to Tencent, it's not that different, like in the sense that Pony has also really over the years given up more and more control and built a more and more sort of complete team. The difference is that Pony still retains his title as CEO and chairman, whereas Jack has, you know, actively given up the CEO title a few years back and will be abdicating, you know, officially his chairman title next year. But I think if you look at what they're actually doing, they they have built sort of plan for succession. I think of the companies you said, the only real out like the only real company that hasn't doesn't seem like it has such a plan is robin and baidu is just notorious for churning through executives their you know luchi their coo left recently after just a year and a half and <laughs> i think that's sort of more um, what maybe people associate with chinese company with no plan for succession but if you look at tensa and alibaba i think they've actually done both a good job so I'm not sure that it's fair to say Jack is the only person who's thinking about this actively. That's probably true because I think for Ponima in Tencent, he actually defers a lot of the public to Martin Lau, the president of Tencent, in terms of the messaging of the company and where the company is actually going. And he's actually been very, very reclusive from the back to try to figure out the strategy for Tencent. You know, I always like to make this analogy that the BAT is very reminiscent of the Three Kingdoms. And Robin Lee is just the perfect Shu Guo, where you have a lot of five-star generals, but they didn't become the winner. And they're basically constantly clobbered by the other two. And I just divided between who should be Sun Quan and who should be Cao Cao. And I might always think that, you know, Jack Ma is more like Cao Cao and Ponima is more like Sun Quan. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I, yeah, like I said, I think it has a lot to do with the personal uh, personalities of the of the companies, right? Um, yeah, of, of the company founders. Yeah, Pony, like you said, is just, he self-identifies highly as a, you know, engineer, as a nerd. Whereas Jack has always been like, I'm a teacher, right? I'm a public speaker. I'm, you know, a guru. Uh, and that's why he's much, much more visible. I mean, it also helps a lot that his English is fantastic. So that's why we see a lot more of him in the Western press as well. I think that comes to the famous memo then. Gemma wrote the memo to announce his departure. And my favorite line is the part where he said, the one thing I can promise everyone is Alibaba was never about Jack Ma, but Jack Ma will f forever belong to Alibaba. I mean, that's a great line. I'm pretty sure that a lot of executives will use that at some point. What are your thoughts on the memo as a whole? <laughs> I read it. I think it's, I mean, it's like, it's, it's pretty sentimental. It's very, especially the line you just cited. It's very Jack. So I'm not surprised. You know, I read the it, the Chinese as well as the English version. I think that basically it's, it was pretty much expected he would write something like that. And by the way, Chinese CEOs often write these sort of memos that sometimes are public, sometimes are to their employees, but, you know, are 
I, I think intentionally leaked to the press. But there is a lot of, yeah, people use a lot of like sort of sentimental um, language. It's completely normal. I think probably Jack Ma's letter got so much attention because of the high profile nature of Alibaba. But like if you read like Lei Jun's stuff to his, you know, employees, it's, it's, it's very much the same, right? It's very like com- full of camaraderie, full of like motivational chicken soup (laughs) and then even if you read like recent the recent uh companies chinese companies prospectuses they come with like let's say a chairman's letter i I can think of two that i recently read like pinduoduo and neo yeah like they're full of like idealism and stuff it almost doesn't feel like it belongs in an ipo prospectus but again that's very much the chinese way Yeah, like I really suggest your listeners read them if you if you if you want to get a better sense of how Chinese CEOs communicate because that that is the way they communicate. I like the point that you made about that in Chinese is actually also pretty interesting read as well because Chinese is a very metaphorical language and actually a lot of the essence of what how Jack presented his departure in Chinese was far more interesting. So for those who know understands Chinese as we do, you should probably go and read the memo of all these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's So I guess the past is past. And of course, we look to the future then. Who is Daniel Zhang, the successor to his chairmanship next year at this time? Yeah, well, at this point, I think Daniel is compared to Jack, right? So they're positioned in media. And again, I I don't know either of them personally, but I can just tell you sort of like how the media positions them. And, And this could be Alibaba PR or it could be actually true but they're sort of like yin and yang they're very complimentary so you have jack who is this sort of straight talking a very motivational like very sort of loud guru type teacher right and then you have daniel who's very much sort of heads down works hard doesn't you know supposedly he works really hard doesn't have a very much like of a social life and you know sort of sticks around like alibaba uh, industrial park most of the time if you look at his background he used to be the cfo of shanda which is which was a publicly listed gaming company and one of the earlier companies in china to go public and actually Shanda at the time was like a three billion dollar company so one of the reasons he joined alibaba was he said oh like yeah, i'm cfo of a three billion dollar company i wonder if i can successfully be a CFO of a $30 billion company. And, you know, he joined Alibaba like 10 years ago, over 10 years ago. And now he, lo and behold, he's not just a CFO, he's the CEO of, a, you know, $400 billion company. So he's really, really uh, grown along with Alibaba. If I had to like use a, this is not a really good, or this is not a perfect metaphor, but like you can think of Jack as more like Steve Jobs, sort of like very visionary, very out there, really great marketer. And Daniel is more like Tim Cook, right? Like really just executes well, Uh, doesn't have too much of a temper, is much more low key. In fact, even though he's been CEO of Alibaba for so long, he's just so little in the press that he was announced, you know, when the retirement was announced that some articles were like, who is Zhang Yong, right? His Chinese name. Who is Daniel Zhang? <laughs> like, here are things you need to know about him because you might not have heard of him before. So even though he's been at Alibaba for over a decade, he just doesn't have the public presence or persona that Jack does. However, if you look at his achievements at least as uh, jack has out laid, uh, has laid them out 
they're very significant. So first of all, he created Tmall, and Tmall is a very significant part of Alibaba's business. Like I said, they're the or they're the marketplace for larger brands sell, right? Because Taobao is more C to C, and Tmall is really B to C. That's considered his entrepreneurship or actually intrapreneurship、uh, experience, and I'm sure that's behind a lot of the reason why he is now the main guy in terms of Alibaba. He also created the、um, Singles Day. The November eleventh、uh, Singles Day, which is the equivalent of you know China's Black Friday, so he created that and he gets credit for it. And again, that's like almost one of the most important days to Alibaba at this point, right? So, also when he took over as CEO, Alibaba had just gone public, and he, that Alibaba had like a you know barely two hundred billion dollar market cap, and he's more than doubled that in the last three years. Of course, you can argue that you know. Maybe other if someone else was in his position, Alibaba would still be doing well. But the main thing that he's credited with is that he's really turned Alibaba from just a sort of e-commerce company to a much more, like we said in the beginning, a much more complete platform. So you know, people in China credit him with saying he's turned Alibaba from something that was more. Just commercial to now a real tech company, and some of the initiatives include,、uh, of course, like there's Ant Financial and Cynow, but specifically like Aliyun, Ali Cloud,、um, which by the way,、um, Alibaba like loves to highlight, and it it grew like ninety three percent last quarter. So it's a very fast growing business and very important to Alibaba, and、uh, um, like a lot of the strategies behind. You know, going towards the more technical parts, more data-driven parts of businesses are, you know, at least externally, from what I can see, they're attributed or credited to Daniel. So, I guess what would be the key area of focus which are、uh, which Alibaba Group are actually heading in the next decade? I mean, I look at their three components of it, and I think that maybe you have some thoughts on each one of them. So, maybe I'll start off first by going to the external、um, out of China. Uh, let's start with international expansion. Where where do you think they will be heading then? Well, I know they just set up an important、um, JV in Russia, right? <laughs> so, I think for most of the Chinese companies that I can see,、um, they are going primarily so in, into neighboring regions, right? Because expanding into the West, it's it's just far and it's very expensive. As well, whereas you have sort of lower hanging fruit in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, and then of course all along the One Belt One Road、um, program, which you definitely want to support if you're a leading Chinese company because that is President Xi's sort of like lasting, like he's basically made it his legacy, right? One Belt One Road. So there's a lot of countries along there that you want to participate in. So I think,、um, as far as I can see, the Like maybe five years ago,、uh, a lot of Chinese tech companies were really eager to come here in Silicon Valley and establish a big presence here, but that slowed down somewhat. And they've, from what I can see, been a lot more、um, serious about where you're at. You know, Singapore, Southeast Asia, India in particular, and like I said earlier, the the Obor One Belt One Road countries. How about and financial and China because they are also going to go IPO and be individual companies that are of significant weight to Alibaba Group as a whole. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you look at, so we actually did an episode <laughs> on Ant Financial a couple weeks ago. So I think for Ant Financial, it's not a near, near term, I feel like it's not in the next one or two years. It seems they've said that it'll be, you know, a, a few years down the road. There are some challenges for the business because fintech is just heavily regulated in China. And you've already seen people coming in and taking some of the best ideas and replicating them. For example, Yugo Ball, right? So that that business has completely changed in the past five years. If you look at Ant Financial's own sort of projections, they've also changed a lot from sort of a consumer finance, a purely consumer finance now to they're projecting that most of their revenues in a few years will actually be from enterprise sales. So they will be more of a technical solutions provider uh, versus what many people might know them as now, which is like Alipay and, and purely consumer. And a lot of that really has to do with just sort of changing regulations and changing assessment of risk, you know, credit, et cetera, in China. So we'll see. Obviously, it's worth like, 150 billion dollars or something like that at this point so it's a huge company and everyone's anticipating its ipo but i actually think compared to the alibaba's sort of like core business it probably will change a lot more than we think and Taino, you think it's also going to be in the next few years because i think they're still in the building stage of the logistics for just within china itself yeah Taino already does something like I think it's 5,050 million packages a day. Um, should check that number, but I know it starts with five. So it's already huge. But Tainiao does have competition, for example, from JD Logistics, which also spun off from JD and also raised uh, you know, a few billion dollars in funding. So I think it does have competition. For that business, I think the technology will be really, really important, right? Because logistics is going to be very much... In, in the future, at least, it's going to be very much reliant on machines, algorithms, data to be the most efficient in the business. So we'll see if they're able to sort of hold on to that uh, commanding, leading position that they have now. And of course, not just JD Logistics, also Shunfeng, which is almost the equivalent of a DHL in China as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lots of competition. So how about smart retail then? This whole online and offline concept, because now both Alibaba and Tencent are heading into this retail space and it's getting very hot there as well. Yeah, my personal opinion is that it's a little overblown at this point. So I went to Hema's uh, supermarket, which is their sort of, sort of like smart grocery store, like I said earlier, at the beginning of the year. And I don't know, maybe I was one of the few people who was unimpressed, but I was really unimpressed. <laughs> so and I think there is, while there is opportunity in sort of completely cashierless completely automated stores, uh, convenience stores, I'm not sure that is going to be as easy to roll out or as profitable as maybe some of the other businesses like Aliyun or whatever that Alibaba is working on. So we'll see, right? Again, because I think the, the real competition is not like people staffed stores. The real competition is like really easy delivery. So I'm not I'm not really sure the smart retail space is going to be, you know, as big as people think. And not the offline portion anyway. The the smart retail that we're talking about is like offline grocery stores and convenience stores, right? I think people were like overinvested into it in China in particular at the end of last year. There were just like so many companies that got funded in this space and you're already starting to see some of them die. 
So what does it mean for the competitors for Alibaba? For example, BAT, there's still Baidu and Tencent, and of course, the rest of the Chinese tech giants. And I should mention the TMD, Toutiao, Meituan, Dianping, and Didi. What does it mean for them? And of course, Jingdong as well, which is lurking from the sidelines. They are biggest competitor in e-commerce. Oh, uh, you mean because uh, Jack Ma retired? Yeah, as in this leadership transition, what does it mean also for the competition that they are facing as a group? Because in China, it's very competitive. Well, like I said, you know, honestly, Jack is still will continue to be involved, right? So although he is abdicating his chairman role next year, he will continue to be on the board, and he will be on this sort of lifetime partnership board of thirty six people who still exert significant, you know, control. I think that for the competitors in China, the other internet companies in the Chinese media, what we've seen is that Jack's move has been sort of greatly applauded, and in fact, a lot of people said, "Hey, teacher Ma." teacher Jack Ma, this might be his greatest lesson yet, you know, how to sort of let go and let the company grow without him overshadowing it. And there in it implicitly is a challenge for the other internet companies to see what they will do if they will come up with a succession plan. I think especially with some of the recent scandals that come up, you know, with JD, with DD, there is increasing sort of scrutiny of corporate governance especially for publicly listed companies like JD. And maybe that will have some pressure for, you know, the, the peers of Alibaba. Maybe some shareholders will come up and be like, hey, we, we actually want to know if there is a succession plan. We want to know if, you know, who, who's next in line. And also, hey, there are all these corporate governance things that maybe don't make the most sense. But I don't know. I don't know if people will really be that vocal about it. Because again, Chinese internet companies are still growing so fast. Like even Alibaba, it's still growing 61% year on year. That's that's crazy so it's i don't know if shareholders would just be distracted by the growth and not focus on this because you know when things are going really well you you know when the car is going really fast you don't want to change drivers in the middle right so we'll see Rima, many thanks for coming on the show and talk about your thoughts on alibaba's leadership transition and of course in closing i would like to ask you two questions my first question is can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything that has impacted your personal or work life? Yeah, first of all, I love your podcast. And I, I, li- I don't listen to that many podcasts, actually, despite being a podcaster. <laughs> so I do love, uh, I would love to recommend Revisionist History, which probably a lot of people have listened to, uh, but it's Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Haven't had the chance to read too many books lately, but I did finally see the movie um, Three Billboards Out of Ebbing's uh, Missouri. And that was an amazing movie. I really highly recommend everyone see it. But it could be too American for for maybe your audience. But I think it just captures so well a lot of the... It's just well acted, well scripted, and it captures so well a lot of the current status quo in, in America. Really interesting. So where can my audience find you then? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter these days. R-U-I-M-A is my Twitter handle. And then, you know, yeah, I think... That's probably where I'm mostly at because I'm not very active on the other social networks anymore. And of course, yeah, subscribe to our podcast. Yeah, highly recommend it. I'm also listening to it. It's now on my feed too on Overcast. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> China. You can definitely Google me at Bernard Leung and you can find the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast or anywhere else in the world. And of course, tweet to me. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Seriously, that helps in, in my discovery. And I'm sure Raymond will say the same for her podcast too. 
Yep. And give us a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. And of course, most importantly, I always would love feedback and it would be great. And uh, Rima, once again, many thanks for coming on the show. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much.